I've always felt that as a musician, you learn how to play your instrument the best you possibly can. Once you do that, genre isn't a factor. I've always enjoyed music. Melody is melody, no matter where it's played, in a, in a, in a symphony orchestra, in a jazz ensemble, in a pop group, or whatever style of music may be. A melody is a melody. A rhythm is a rhythm. Uh, harmony is harmony. You know, it makes no difference what the other elements are. These are the three main things that touch our hearts as, as listeners. That was bassist and the new voice of NEA Jazz Moments, Christian McBride. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. For a 38-year-old, Christian McBride has packed a lot into his career. He's an acclaimed acoustic bass player who's performed with most of the jazz greats, including Sonny Rollins, Freddie Hubbard, and Herbie Hancock, as well as playing regularly with Chick Corea. McBride, however, refuses to be bound by genre. He's performed with many different artists like Sting, Kathleen Battle, and James Brown in a variety of styles, rhythm and blues, classical, soul, hip-hop, pop, and funk. He's fronted the Christian McBride Band, his own jazz, fusion, and funk ensemble, and now he leads the jazz quintet, Inside Straight. Aside from his extraordinary talent as a bassist, McBride is also a composer, arranger, educator, and curator. He served as the creative chair of jazz for the Los Angeles Philharmonic, He's been the artistic director of the Jazz Aspen Snowmass Summer Sessions for over a decade, and in 2005, he was named the co-director of the National Jazz Museum in Harlem. Born and bred in Philadelphia, McBride credits that city for his deep musical roots. It's really great being from Philadelphia because it's not just jazz, it's not just bass players. You have a little bit of everything that has made a mark on the on the world scene with the jazz with the uh, rhythm and blues with doo-wop one of the best orchestras of all time is there it's just really a hotbed of artistic greatness but the irony in all of that is a lot of artists who realize that they want to take their their craft to a broader stage, they they almost always have to leave Philly. I think that might just be the way of the world, though, because, I mean, I mean, New York City is like the main artery to the world. It feels like that everyone at some point has to make the migration to New York to be able to let the world share that artistic greatness. So uh, I, I joined those ranks and moved to New York City immediately after high school graduation. You started playing pretty young. Yeah, yes. I was nine. And once my mother saw that I was really becoming serious about it and having this dedication to wanting to better myself, she enrolled me into a middle school that had a great music program and that's when I was, uh, actually, I was forced to play the acoustic bass. I didn't want to play the acoustic bass. My first instrument of choice was the trombone. Why the trombone? 
<laughs> because even by the age of 11, I had become a huge James Brown fan. And some of my favorite moments on James Brown recordings were the trombone solos of Fred Wesley. So I wanted to learn how to play trombone like Fred Wesley. And the first day of orchestra rehearsal, I got a trombone. And they they broke us all up in, in sectionals. So that we, the, all the trombone players went in one room, trumpet players in this room, woodwinds in this room. So the brass instructor comes in, and there were about five of us in there with a trombone. And he just goes down the line. He says, okay, I want to hear each of you just make a sound. I couldn't even do that. I couldn't even make a sound. I'm blowing and just raw air is just coming out of the horn my face is turning blue and I'm trying with all my might to get some sound out of the horn but the brass instructor bless his heart he looks at me and says um, yeah um, listen uh, Christian there's a rumor that you play the electric bass so yeah he said, I, I think you should go into the bass room <laughs> I don't think trombone's gonna work out for you so, but I don't want to play the acoustic bass. So, yeah, but, you know, we could really use one in the orchestra. The rest is history, as they say. <laughs> your father plays the bass, yes. correct? And your great uncle. Yes. And my father, at, at that time, when I was in high school, he didn't even play the acoustic bass. He was playing mostly all electric bass. He was starting to get his feet wet with the acoustic bass a little bit. But my great uncle was the one who I would go over his house and, and watch him practice and he always had this real big, thick, warm, honey tone on his bass, you know. And, you know, it was great for me to get to hear him play unamplified because then I knew what the bass was supposed to sound like. You know, I would hear these great recordings of Ray Brown with the Oscar Peterson trio or Paul Chambers with Miles Davis. But hearing it on a record and then hearing it in front of you was like night and day. What drew you to jazz, Christian? Once again, I have to acknowledge my great uncle because growing up in Philadelphia, as I said before, there was so much great everything in the city. Jazz wasn't exactly foreign to me, even when I was a kid. I grew up in a primarily an R&B household. You know, it was mostly Motown, Isaac Hayes, Al Green, James Brown, OJs. Every once in a while, a Ramsey Lewis recording would play or a Miles Davis recording would play or a George Benson record would play. Something that would allude to this sound known as jazz. So, you know, so it was always this mixture of music going on in, in my childhood. But when I started playing the acoustic bass in middle school, when when my great uncle found out, he got, he was so excited. He says, now that you're playing the acoustic bass, I got some things I, I want to lay on you. So I went over to his house, and um, he had a big stack of albums that he had already had planned for me to listen to. All day long, he just played, you know, Mingus, Ray Brown, Paul Chambers, Ron Carter, Sam Jones, every great legendary jazz bass player. He, you know, just, it was a one-day crash course. And, uh, because of his demeanor and because of his personality, it was fun. You know, that my great uncle always made jazz fun for me. And, you know, my, my great uncle is uh, the classic caricature of what a jazz musician 
was at one point. You know, he always wore like a, a tam, wire rim glasses, goatee, smoked Pall Malls, always carried a leather shoulder bag, uh, walked with a very hip stroll. Did Every, he have a beard? Oh, absolutely. You know, everybody was cat and baby. When he would listen to his recordings, he would sit in his chair and he would sit way, way, way down in the chair with his back almost on the seat. And uh, just watching him listen to music was so much fun. I thought, well, jazz can make him that cool. Then maybe it'll make me that cool as well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. You go to Juilliard and you're there and you're getting all these gigs. You hardly unpacked your clothes in New York and you're getting calls from people. How did that come to be? How did that work out? Oh, goodness. When when I was somewhere between 14 and 15, uh, a few things happened that kind of uh, lit the fire a little bit for me by the time I moved to New York. Once again, being in Philly, it's so close to New York. Every musician who would play up and down the East Coast They would always come through Philly. So I had a chance to meet people like Max Roach, Dr. Billy Taylor, rest his soul, Red Rodney, Jimmy Heath, and then people already in Philly, like Trudy Pitts and Sid Simmons and the saxophonist Tony Williams and Bootsy Barnes and all these wonderful local musicians. I got a chance to start playing around with them, you know, sneaking into jam sessions, you know, being underage, going into bars, you know. It was great because a lot of the older musicians who knew I wasn't supposed to be in there, they would say, okay, look, come on up and play. We'll let you play one song and then get out of here. (laughs) Wynton Marsalis was also pretty important to you at that point. When I met Wynton Marsalis, he came to Philadelphia to give a workshop. I must have been 14 or 15. I had all of his albums up to that point. And I learned as much music off of those albums as I could because I wanted to be prepared. I had been, I had fallen so deeply in love with jazz. I was just soaking up as much music as I could every second of the day. I I had a very strong repertoire for a 15-year-old, I think, uh, because I was really spending all of my time just studying music, you know, uh, transcribing solos, learning tunes. So if one day Winston Marcellus would ask me to sit in with him, I'd be prepared. And that's exactly what happened. Winton came to do this workshop. I met him. We played together. He seemed to like what he heard. And a few weeks later, he was doing a performance at the Academy of Music in Philly. And he asked me to come sit in. We didn't talk about it. I had no idea he was going to do that. Uh, He gets on the microphone, and he says, ladies and gentlemen, a few days ago I met this young kid. You know, he's a good bass player, and I think you're going to be hearing a lot about him. And I'm backstage, you know, like, oh, my God, what's he going to do? He calls me out to play. And from that moment on, word started to spread around. You know, there's this kid in Philly. He he might be able to do something, you know. So I got to New York, going to Juilliard, and Bobby Watson came to track me down, and Bobby Watson gave me my first gig ever in New York, September of 1989. James Williams was playing piano, and Victor Lewis was playing drums, and that was like being called from double A straight to the majors. I was thrown into the fire 
immediately. And it wasn't an easy gig. For whatever songs I learned in high school, Bobby called every song that I didn't know. <laughs> it should have been a traumatic experience, but I was so determined, I was so hungry. I knew that if Bobby ever called me again, I'd do a better job the second go around. So instead of getting down and depressed, uh, I got more driven and inspired to do a better job the next time he called me. And then, you know, once Bobby called me for that second gig, actually after the first gig, things just kind of snowballed. And you started playing with Freddie Hubbard. Yes. That, 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 was, uh, that, that was the cherry on top. <laughs> One of the musicians I had met in high school was the great drummer Carl Allen. Carl was playing with Freddie Hubbard, and everybody knew that if you wanted to play with Freddie, Carl Allen was the man to talk to, because not only was he Freddie's drummer, but he was also Freddie's road manager. Freddie's pianist at that time was Benny Green, who had become probably my closest and dearest friend uh, upon my arrival in New York. He was playing some of those early gigs with Bobby Watson as well, so Benny and I got to be really great friends. I would nudge Carl in the side and say, uh, hey, man, um, Freddie's bass player at that time was a gentleman by the name of Jeff Chambers. I said, so, Carl, when Jeff can't make it, who does Freddie use? (laughs) Oh, well, you know, whoever, you know, is available. I said, well, um, you know, if it's not too much to ask, you know, throw my name in the hat. Carl said, I, I, I got it. Don't worry. Don't worry. I'll put in the good word for you. And as fate will have it, a show came up. Jeff couldn't do it. And Carl called me up. He said, all right, here's your chance. You ready? And uh, I flew to Chicago to play the South Shore Jazz Festival. And I stayed in Freddie's band for two and a half years. And it was just the most amazing experience, you know, getting to hang with him, getting to listen to someone with that level of mastery up close. I had seen Freddie play live when I was in high school, and the energy was the same as a a rock and roll or an R&B show. It was so much fire, so much energy. Hearing him play, just people in the audience were like shouting. You know, it was was incredible. Jazz is supposed to be mature. (laughs) Not the way he played. Oh man, these people were going nuts. Yeah. It's kind of like Chuck Brown. Ah, that's right, DC girl. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, that's that is the man, busting loose. That was one of my anthems when I was in elementary school. <laughs> <laughs> give me the bridge, y'all. Give me the bridge, y'all. Uh, uh, uh. Yeah, never mind. You play with such a wide range of musicians. How did that evolve? I I have always looked forward to collaborating with musicians who who I respect. My first gig of note outside of the jazz world was with Bruce Hornsby. And I played with Bruce, this was in 1994, and we did a couple of shows opening for Bonnie Raitt. Once that happened, I think things started to brew outside of the jazz world. I started to be able to do recordings with a lot of people Kenny Rankin, Paul Simon, Carly Simon, Natalie Cole. And I always had my love for R&B and soul music. And then I got to meet and know James Brown. 
now I had this whole other world going on outside of the jazz world, and uh, it's been so much fun. Playing with Chick Corea, which you yeah. have done often, tell me about that. What's that like? I, I love Chick Corea so much. It's unbelievable that I've had such a wonderful musical relationship and friendship with this icon for the last, I don't know, 15, 16 years. One would assume that when you're at legend status like Chick, there's sort of a, a wall. Chick is probably the most accessible, most friendly, most giving musician I've ever met. Uh, when I first met Chick, which was in 1992, was at the at the old Mount Fuji Jazz Festival in Japan. I remember walking up to him and, you know, Mr. Korea, my name is Chris McBride, I'm one of your biggest fans. My plan was to say that and leave him alone because, you know, people gravitate toward him all the time. Somebody's always asking him something, so I just wanted to say hello and get out of there. He continues on. Who are you playing with? That's why I'm playing with Benny Green. Oh, great, what time do you guys go on? So we go on at 4 o'clock. What songs are you guys playing? You know, all of a sudden he's, like, interested in what I'm doing. You know, I go, why is he asking me all this stuff? You know, I, I know he's not coming. He's going to be too busy to come and watch us. Not only did he come and watch us, but for the next two or three years, anytime I was in Los Angeles with Benny Green, Chick would always come. He's always been a very active supporter of musicians. And I admire that so much about him. He has a restless restless creative mind he's always composing he's always making something happen and sometimes i look at him i go you know makes me feel bad because i look at him and i I think i'm not sure if i want to be that busy you know when i'm in my late 60s but chick is always going he's always creating new bands so he can play with new musicians that's what it's all about he spreads the love well, you kind of do, too. You decided that you wanted to create bands and, and lead your own. What generated that decision? I don't know. I, I, I think that I've realized that I've been fortunate to have so many great musicians and so many great people support me when I was a younger musician in my teens and in my early 20s. I always decided that if I were ever in that same position, it'd be a no-brainer. I would have to do the same thing. It's a cycle because nobody does it alone. We all need help from somebody. We all need an opportunity from somebody. You know, I think for a long time, I had these dreams. I think all of us have these dreams of, you know, we want to create the next great Miles Davis quintet. You know, we want to have guys who rewrite the books on what music can be. The group, the band, a group of musicians that are your guys no matter what come hell or high water these are your cats i'm now starting to realize that you can still have that and still collaborate with a whole lot of other musicians you know well you're doing a pretty good job with inside straight thank you (laughs) first where did the name come from The, the name inside straight was chosen by a couple from california deborah and doug moody We had a Name the Band contest at the Monterey Jazz Festival in 2008. I was the artist in residence that year, and the group, we had done a few gigs, and I thought the name Christian McBride Quintet was so lame. (laughs) I wanted somebody to name the group, so 
instead of us doing it, I thought it would be fun for the audience to name the group. So we had all these submissions from these from fans out in California, and we loved Inside Straight. Philosophically, that's where the band was. It also was the name of a recording of one of my biggest heroes, Cannonball Adderley. So it just seemed like everything worked with the phrase Inside Straight. Everything all came it together. It all came together. Now, Inside Straight is such a collaboration of voices. And seeing you in performance with the players is wonderful for the, exactly that reason. That stage is really shared by everybody. Thank you. You know, once again, the best music is made when there's no ego involved. One could argue that <laughs> because, you know, there are a lot of great musicians who have had tremendous egos and have become legends. But I don't think it was because of their egos, because they were great at what they did. Yeah. But my favorite music has always been when the artists have equal say in what's happening. And that's why I believe Miles Davis was probably the greatest band leader ever, particularly in terms of the last half century, because Miles never needed to be the main voice. Miles understood that if I have a John Coltrane, what good is it to hold them back and not let them shine? You know, that just makes the music better if I let them display all of their colors. You have a CD with Inside Straight called Kind of Brown, and if you don't mind, I'd like to hear a cut from it. What I mind? I demand you play something from Kind of Brown. And I was going to go for Brother <laughs> Mister. What do you think? That's, that's, that's good for me. Brother Mister, that's your composition. Yes. Can you just talk a little bit about what you wanted to do with that song, with that tune? I purposely wrote that song as a opener. When I was writing the music for this project, which was like two or three days leading up to the recording, I systematically knew what I wanted to do, how I wanted the album to flow. And I've always found that the first song of most recordings that I enjoy, they're ear catchers, you know, they're toe tappers. And what better way than to do it with a blues? It's a blues with a little bit of a different thing on it. You know, it's not like your everyday 12-bar blues, but, you know, I knew it was something that might make people pat their feet, something that the musicians would be able to sink their teeth into. And then as the album would progress get into some different territory but yeah you know I, I knew I wanted that first song to be something that uh, grabbed the attention of the listener right away. You're committed to exposing young people to jazz and to making jazz a part of their life. I know that's very important to you. It's part of your life's work. Yeah. And you're involved in many different projects but I'd like to talk about the Jazz Museum of Harlem where you're the co-director and one of your projects at the museum is Harlem Speaks. Tell me about that. Well, my work with the National Jazz Museum in Harlem came about 
through working with Lauren Schoenberg, who's a uh, very well-respected musician and historian and educator, been around the scene for a very long time. He became the executive director of the National Jazz Museum in Harlem, and he asked me not too long after that, he says, you know, I think you might be the person that the museum would need to help get it to that next level. And Harlem Speaks, that's our flagship series. That was the first series that we started that really caught a good head of steam around New York City. We have now, I believe it's 12 programs we have running all over New York City now. But the Harlem Speaks program is basically our version of Inside the Actor's Studio. It started out with legendary Harlem musicians, musicians who really, for some strange reason, below 110th Street aren't as well known as they are above 110th Street. People like Bill Saxton, Celino Clark, and we would interview them for Harlem Speaks. And then that started to blossom out. We interviewed Clark Terry, and Hank Jones, so many of uh, these great musicians we were honored to have as part of our series. And people could come up and hear it for free. Where else could you hear Hank Jones tell his life story for free in an intimate room? Now, who haven't you recorded with that you want to? Oh, man, a whole lot of people. As far as jazz is concerned, I feel real lucky that I've had a chance to perform and play with almost every last person I've ever dreamt of, of playing with. I was very disappointed that I never got to play with Oscar Peterson. I'll have to just eat that one. <laughs> but I have had a chance to play with Sonny Rollins. And just some months ago when he had his uh, 80th birthday concert at the Beacon Theater, Ornette Coleman came and sat in with us. So 10 years ago, had you asked me this question, I would have said Sonny Rollins and Ornette Coleman. But now, not only have I had a chance to play with the both of them, but I had a chance to play with the both of them together. And I feel lucky seeing Ornette and Sonny Rollins on the same stage, just going back and forth, you know. I'm still not quite sure what happened. <laughs> <laughs> Christian McBride, thank you so the pleasure much. Was mine. That was jazz bassist Christian McBride. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from Brother Mister from the CD Kind of Brown, composed by Christian McBride and performed by Christian McBride and Inside Straight, used courtesy of Mac Avenue Records. The Artworks Podcast is posted every Thursday at www.arts.gov. And now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, poet Kevin Young. To find out how Artworks in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.